Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. We are approaching our one-year anniversary with style, as today you'll hear me talk with Patience Bloom. Patience is an editor at Harlequin, but she has a very interesting story about where she grew up and where she's educated and things she's done. And she and I talk a lot about, well, what it's like to be an editor and the romance industry and publishing and even Ted Lasso and ELO and Duran Duran. You're going to have a really good time. You're going to have a good time if you put Abe's muffins in your mouth. They taste great. They're allergen free. And um, you can get them at all the places where you get good food. And if you love this podcast, subscribe, rate it, uh, send me a message. You can go to the website, isthatreallylegal.com, and there's a place there for you to leave me messages. You can also tell me who is it you'd like to have in the second year. It's been a wild time. Uh, This whole first year, pretty much a pandemic podcast. I'm looking forward to maybe even meeting people in person to have them on this podcast. Haven't done that yet, but I'm not ruling it out. Um, If you have ideas for who should be on, who I should meet, where I should go, keep it clean and send them to me, please. But right now, relax, sit back, and enjoy my conversation with Patience Bloom. Patience Bloom, thank you for coming on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Great to talk to you today. It's my pleasure. Great. And as you and I talk very briefly, we've known each other for years. We've met at lots of writing conferences and possibly the occasional cocktail party high above Manhattan at the Woolworth Building, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. That's right. Uh, And of course, we're talking during what I'll call the tail end of the pandemic because I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had both vaccines over two weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if you're if you've done the same. Yes, I mean I'm. I have I think three more days left. Um, but basically, I'm immune. Yeah, and I had it back in March. You did too. This mar- past March? No, the March, but like when it first happened. I had. I actually had COVID before we knew it existed. Before it was cool. Yeah. It's- yeah. Now I'm really Brooklyn. Oh yeah, man. I was into COVID before anybody else was. That's yeah. awful. Not funny. I get it, but it's kind of funny. Um, and I looked, you know, you can know people from every day, but you don't really know their background. So I did a little research on you as I always do with everybody. And I think you and I come from a very similar Northeast liberal arts yeah. Uh, valuing education kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but what a lot of, first of all, the name patience is very unusual. Yes, for, it is. For any generation after uh, the Victorian period, basically. Yeah, yeah. Although my parents were hippies. So it fits, <sighs> but at the same time, influenced by, I think, um, uh, my, my grandfather was a minister, uh, oh. Northern Baptist, and, um, which is odd because I did not grow up with religion in my family. So it's sort of, I think there are some influences there between the 60s and maybe a, a 
you know. The, well, what's interesting to me is I anticipated or assumed you were Jewish. I don't well, know why. I, I married into into the faith. Oh, okay. There you go. So I had yeah. an intuitive hit that wasn't completely wrong. I'm a wannabe for sure. <laughs> you know, it's always funny to me growing up Jewish from Long Island, from people from the Bronx, and you know, before that Coney Island, before that the old country, how people want to be Jewish, and it's usually the most un-Jewish people you'd ever meet. I have a friend who's yeah. a Korean Southerner, Val. If you're listening, I'm talking about you. Val wants to be Jewish. Ever, I think ever since she was in the chorus of a high school production of Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Yeah. But, and I married a beautiful Shiksa goddess who went to Berkeley, is a California girl. Um, so who knows? Everybody's got their stories. Yeah. Your story started in, I want to say Connecticut probably. Is that right? It's true. I mean, my most of my family's from Connecticut. I spent a lot of time in upstate New York and Paris. Um, but then those two know, places, it's the yeah. same thing. <laughs> Having spent four years in Schenectady, it's almost exactly <laughs> like Paris. It's totally. I have to stop you. Okay, first of all, I want to I want to say Patience. By the way, is the name of a Gilbert and Sullivan musical. Yes, it is. It, and it's it, a good it, one. And a card yeah. game. Uh, right. Guns N' Roses song. Oh, right. <laughs> See, and, you're younger than me, so Guns N' Roses is sort of off of my tracking, but I get it. Um, but but where upstate New York? Uh, Brockport, which is right near Rochester, New York. Okay, so that's really upstate. That's yeah. like up and to the left. Yeah, I have I have kind of a soft spot for upstate New York, even though it's not like politically, it's a little more conservative i think it depends yeah like of course you know there's people who don't know new york assume that like it's brooklyn where yeah. i am right now and manhattan and then there's long island which is a completely different thing and then sort of this nebulous what people call upstate which for some people can be anything from you know rockland county or westchester all the way out to erie Mm -hmm. <laughs> or you know or corning and it, there's a lot of new york in new york for yeah, sure yeah. totally it's it's a whole world and you you went to a kind of highfalutin private high school right i did um and it's mostly because my grandparents lived down the road from the highfalutin high school my father went there and my brother so i wanted to go there too so and what did you what was your takeaway of your years uh, at that school? I mean, did you feel like you were grateful? Did you, like, were there pluses, were there minuses? I mean, first of all, when you go to high school, you're a teenager. So your view of the world is completely screwed up anyway. But totally. yeah. what, any kind of takeaway would be appreciated. I, well, I had divorced parents, so I wanted to, to go to a boarding school. Plus I watched, I'm very influenced by the facts of life and any kind of, you know, school Just, or a community. You're in a community. It's very So people know what you mean. They don't, you don't mean the facts of life with like the birds and the bees. If yeah. for some reason you don't get it, there was a very popular sitcom called The Facts of Life. Yes. About a girl's boarding school, oddly enough, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. Only this was co-ed. 
So it was, I just thought it was going to be so much fun. And it was, it really was. I mean, you're just sort of, you're, you're forced to make some adult decisions, you know, even though you're surrounded by adults, you, you know, you're living in an, a little apartment. It's sort of like a pre getting ready for adulthood. And for that reason, I felt very, uh, I adjusted to college pretty quickly. I found in my college experience, and I want to talk about that in a second, you and I went to very similar colleges, mm -hmm. um, very liberal arts uh, in the middle of nowhere kind of colleges. Yes. And I found that um, the people who went to prep school, I'm just going to call it prep school, even though yeah. it technically wasn't, to preppy, private, go-away schools like Lawrenceville, Choate, Rosemary, Taft, all those places, they came in with an ability to study regardless of what was going on around them, yeah. to understand how to get the reading done in time, how like what was really expected of them, and literally just scheduling their lives yeah. in a completely different way than the people who went to public school and were like, I can drink, I can smoke things. Yeah. And yeah. it was just, a, I feel like they had a leg up and man, if you were competitive, they crushed the first couple of trimesters. Well, we had trimesters where I went, or yeah. semesters. So I went to Union College in Schenectady, which is this tiny mm -hmm. liberal arts school. A couple of presidents and some other famous people went there. But mm -hmm. you went to Oberlin, which yes. is one of the all-time greatest liberal arts schools ever, yeah. uh, especially known for their music program. Exactly, yeah. What Do you play any instruments? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, that, that, that was the weird thing is I did, I did not play any, I'm not musical really. So. Do you sing? I try to, but I'm told I shouldn't. Um, wow, the, the, the level of honesty here is so refreshing because you could have just BS'd me. You could go, oh yeah, I sing. And yeah, just let it that. But... singing voice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but the cat's out of the bag. And because of my legal background, I have to say now your credibility is in a little trouble, at least on that <laughs> subject. But what drew you to Oberlin? Um, well, I'd, I'd applied to a bunch of schools. Um, and then I, my, I applied to Smith, which it was between Oberlin and Smith. My mom went to Smith and Oberlin was just one of those choices that I had that I didn't really know anything about. And I felt like I should try something different. You know, I went to right. high school, maybe I'll just do something different. And I, it, I, yeah. I also, I mean, for people who don't know, Smith, I think still is an all women's school. Yes. And yeah. I would think having come from a co-ed situation, you had a, you had a decision to make. Yeah. Were you going to continue to be co-ed or did you say that? And I completely lost it. Or did you not address that? Um, it was an issue, um, but it, mostly it was that I, I would have gone there, I think for, uh, I think the wrong reasons. I, I liked a boy that lived close to there and I thought that's not a good reason to go to college. You were smart. A boy who didn't really like me back. So that's, that's never a good. That fool. Yeah. No. A jerk. <laughs> we, so, we, I will not ask you his name. Not no, 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 no. <laughs> but you seem to have you seem to have gotten through that process pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I felt like I was making an adult decision. I have a story about your wife, by the way. You have a story about my wife? Yes. 
you've posted pictures on Twitter every now and then. And I was like, oh, she's so pretty. And I was walking down the street. I think it was in Tribeca about a year or a year and a half ago. Uh And I saw her on the street and she just had this smile on her face. She was just happy. And I was like, there's Eric's wife. (laughs) And she just, and it was, it was like one of my last days, I think in the office. And it was like a nice little omen for the, for just that day. It was a, it was very sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, you know, I tend to not post a lot about my wife because there's just creepy people. I don't want, you know, Mm -hmm. and I used to be an agent and I'm still getting people sending me queries. Like even Mm -hmm. though I, I I had somebody send me a query in French. Oh, wow. I, I, I don't know what it was about, but he sent it to my old email address and it got forwarded to me. And I'm like, why am I getting queries? Like I'm not, anyway. Um, but yeah, my wife has two offices, one in Queens and one in Manhattan. And I know, you know, she was probably had a, uh, especially a nice swing in her step because we probably had just had tacos together or something. Mm-hmm. There's a great taco place on Church Street or there, I think it's still there. And you, so were you working at the Woolworth building at the time? Um, well, actually, the since we got, we were acquired by Harper Collins, we moved down to 195 Broadway. And my office used to be at 222 Broadway. I know the Harper Collins building there. I, I was... I interviewed another editor who's at HarperCollins, um, and I love that building. Yeah. You have an anthropology in the yeah, lobby. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> and the HarperCollins offices, when you come in, they like opened up so it's like you can see two or three floors as you get the landing. It's just gorgeous. It's good to know someone's doing something with all that money. They're certainly not paying the editors enough. <laughs> Let's just, okay. I, you know, well, okay, I... Anyway, back to reality. Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> I understand um, what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. And we should talk about publishing. Um, I wanted to get a sense, though, and I wanted my listeners to get a sense of how does somebody get to be Patience Bloom or any editor of any uh, large publishing house? And, and let's remember, I'm going to, I know you also had a graduate degree I hate to gloss over this stuff, but we have things that I really want to talk about. But you ultimately also got a language degree in English or literature arts? I'm trying to remember. Um, French literature, uh, a master's thesis. And I wrote a book. Wow. So I was wrong. But my wife speaks French fluently, by the way. So Yes. Next time you see her on the street, say say hello. (laughs) She will actually be super friendly. And the fact that she's smiley is one of the reasons why I love her, because she's oh really God. that person. I could totally see it just on the street. It's like one one person you don't know who's, you know, their vibe is a happy one. Yeah, she's a good person. I love her. All right, there you go. That's, uh, here's a shock, and if my wife ever listens to this, I love you, Holly. Um, so... Did you always know that you wanted to be an editor? Did you think you wanted to be a writer? Did you have other aspirations? Like how did, because I like listeners to hear that every human being successful, ultimately going to a certain place, did not have a straight line. They didn't have a straight journey to that place. And you're no exception to that. So how do you get to be an editor at what is arguably the world's largest romance publisher? 
Oh, it's, it's definitely a jagged line. I mean, I started out wanting to be a movie star, and that ended when I was 16. And then I, I had no idea until I was 22. I chose to be, I wanted to be a writer. Um, and then I wound up teaching French. And then I decided that I, as I did more and more writing, that I wanted to be in a profession that was close to being a writer, like a famous, you know, great novelist. Um, so I chose publishing and I tempted as one did a lot in the 90s um, right. earlier. And I wound up at a publisher and then I wound up at Harlequin and I thought, well, I kind of read romance novels now and then anyway. So, um, and I just loved the people that I worked with. So I just, I just blinked and 24 years went by. You know, one of the nicest people, at least in my experience in that domain was a person who was the president of Harlequin for a long time. And I am black, for some reason, I want to say Carol Hayes, but I don't know if that's there. Hannah Hayes, yeah. Hannah Hayes, thank you. Yeah, fellow redhead. Yes. Um, and Donna, of course, left the business a while ago. Mm -hmm. But when I met her, I was working for Suzanne Brockman. Yes. Um, who was for a long time a Harlequin author. Mm -hmm. And someday I'll, I will wrestle her to the ground and get her to be on the show. I mean, Susan and I went to high school together and it's a whole mm -hmm. other conversation. And I ended up managing her, not agenting her and doing some other things and working for her. But as a result of that, that's how I got in publishing, working mm -hmm. with Suze. I met a zillion people, including like just going out to dinner with a very big agent who I won't name at the moment. His first name is Steve. I'm sure you'll know who he is. Yes. And um, Donna Hayes and drinking grappa late into the night, yes. which was crazy. But people who aren't in this industry have no idea of the brilliant people behind the scenes. Oh my gosh, it's so true. And you, of which you are one, so I'm happy to say that. But Donna was one of those people for me. I was like, I, how does, it didn't match my pictures mm -hmm. of romance, especially you know, Harlequin, which is known a lot for its category romances. Now, if you don't know folks at home, romances come in a gazillion types, genres, whatever. And category romances are specifically those romances that kind of come out on a monthly basis and then they disappear. At least that was the model when I was involved. And they are yeah. a shorter length in general. I want to say 60,000 words. Yeah, between 50 and 70,000 words. There you go. Yeah. A lot of great writers, including Nora Roberts, Sandra Brown, other, get their start, and Suzanne Brockman, all got their start in their writing by writing category romances. It's a great entry point for writers to see that they can write a story, they can finish a story, they can meet a deadline, they can be edited, all of that stuff. Because it all sounds good when you're talking about it, but you have to be able to actually do it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things about writing category romance is that you have to be focused on writing more than one a year. Um, it is, there is a, there is a, a bit of the idea of churning it out 
Um, you have to be really, you know, regular as far as getting, you know, a number of titles. Um, and I think Suzanne Brockman did that. She wrote six books a year because she That's knew accurate. she built herself. And I think in category romance, you really have to think very broadly about how am I going to build myself in this and to be, get into that mindset of being able to write more than one. Like, so. Yeah, look at Nora Roberts. I mean, that's, I think, where she trained herself to never sleep. Yeah. Uh, I, I literally, the only times I've seen Nora Roberts in a conference were on a treadmill at a strange hour or talking in front of a group or in a corner somewhere writing, I assume. Uh, and, and Nora is, I mean, she's superhuman, but I think you can, I think that that's where she probably cut her teeth uh, yeah. on that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, what, did you edit, and do you edit for those lines, for any of the contempt, for the uh, categories? Oh. oh yeah, that's that's pretty much all I do. Um, gotcha. I, I manage the Harlequin Romantic Suspense line, which is four books a month. I work on all the different, like a lot of the different lines, um, even Christian romance. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm editing like about three books a month. Um, so you are the equivalent of an editor, Nora Roberts. I mean, for people who don't know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be talking That's a little bit just to educate. <laughs> but, but first of all, there are so many genres of size of romance. I mean, there's single titles. And then yeah. there's, of course, you know, people who write. Ultimately, Suze went on to write a series, but they're uh, in a larger format. But in, in her category, romances for, there was Silhouette back then, yep. I remember. And then she created her own a romantic suspense and I was the one who gave her the idea of writing about Navy SEALs and that's how I got my start in publishing. That's I came cool. up with that looking at a magazine and anyway we um she created a series called Tall Dark and Dangerous. Yes. And they're still out there folks and you can get them and you'll see my name in some of the dedications and I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. um, but in even in the subcategory of category romance there's all these different heat levels there's there's suspense there's christian or not well there might be christian but spiritual i'm sorry it's inspirational thank you because i suppose you could have an amish or even jewish inspirational yes uh although i don't think we've had it in that line jewish um we we put I think that we have some um, Jewish-themed stories. I think in some of the some of the other lines. Gotcha. But there's really there's very little um, in terms of culture that doesn't come into romance as a publishing uh, a, a phenomenon. W would you agree? Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? Sure, sure. So that, what I mean is. Any aspect of our culture can be found translated into romance publishing, whether it's sweet romance, small town romance, yeah. super erotic, same sex. Mm -hmm. Now, not always by every publisher, of course. I don't know if Harlequin is doing same sex or if they have an imprint that does that. You know, some publishers don't do everything for a variety of reasons. We're starting to open the doors a bit more um, on that. So uh, I, 
in, um, uh, I'm saying silhouette, Harlequin Special Edition, we do have a same-sex romance by Roan Parrish. Um, and I believe it's coming out this fall. Um, uh, I don't know the title of it offhand, but um, okay. no, but that's something we're, we're definitely looking into more. Um, so you and I are, I mean, you're younger than me, but not by decades. So you and I have seen a lot in publishing in a relatively short period of time. Yes. Uh, which means when we both first came to publishing, computers were fairly new. Mm -hmm. So submitting via computer was, or getting submissions via computer were exciting as opposed to dealing with large amounts of paper. But one of the reasons that I left publishing, one, was that suddenly because of a variety of things, eBooks, Amazon, the destruction of bookstores, their disappearance, the publishing world has really changed significantly. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes. Yes. What what was navigating those waters like for you? I mean, you came into an industry that was relatively unchanged for decades, if not centuries. Mm -hmm. And then you basically jumped on right at watershed moments. Yeah, you I mean, we were still typing. We were still typing. We still got many large amounts of mail, um, physical mail, and... Um, a l just endless numbers of submissions. Um, and then I think with, you know, eBooks and being able to self-publish, you know, that's been cut in half, I'd say. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And the other thing too, is that now um, we have a lot of writers come to us, but also we're doing a lot of going after writers, I think, like doing a lot of research and seeing who is self-publishing and who's doing a great job, you know, finding good writers who might be reluctant to, to publish traditionally. I find myself doing a lot more of that these days. Right. It used to be, for people who know, um, we'd attend these conferences mm -hmm. and people would book appointments to pitch to either agents like myself or editors like you. And they hoped yeah. that one of us or both of us would pick them up and their stories yeah. and their books. And like you're saying now, I, I was there when people started to self-publish and they would come, they would come to uh, panels where I was on the panel and they'd start yelling at me that they didn't need me. I think they yeah. were so angry. I don't know what was going on, but I would say, okay, like, I don't know how to react. Yeah. I mean, I would, you know, that's fine. But like anything else, there was a uh, there was a big push to self-publish, mm -hmm. and then that sort of crashed for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. Um, I think one of the things that Harlequin does for people that self-publishing can't do is a lot. It's a lot like the music business, and I'll, and I'll explain to people. And you can please let me know if you agree or disagree. When you have a big, when you have. Uh, iTunes, you can go on or any music provider, you can go there and you can look for lots of bands, but you're not going to find certain bands unless you really already know who they are or somebody has suggested. 
because there's so much content. I'm not in love with that word content, but we'll use it. There's so much content that it's like drinking from a fire hose. Unless you know what you're looking for, you might not get it. Right. And with self-publishing, you can go on some kind of uh, conduit for self-published romance. And there's going to be a zillion books for $3.99 to download. How do I know what's good? How do I know who actually edited their book? Or am I buying a first draft of a mediocre writer? Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a gatekeeper like Harlequin yeah. or, or another valued publisher, you know that the quality is going to be good. There's no inspector from the U.S. Department of Literature who's right. going to put a stamp <laughs> on everything. <laughs> I agree. And, and if you're listening, you heard it here first. I just came up with that. And I'm yeah. happy to head that department because there's a lot of failed stuff out there. And I know you're, yeah. you're smiling. You've read some of it, I'm sure. There's a lot of crap. <laughs> there's just a lot of crap. In general, it's less dangerous than eating spoiled food, but it can be close to as dangerous to read yeah. something terrible. Yeah, yeah. Hours you don't get back. <laughs> oh, so so anyway, uh, it I, I find that there was a push away from gatekeepers, and they use that derogatorily, but I think it's a valuable term because mm-hmm. there are people who check to make sure that the stuff is good. I mean, mm-hmm. and then there's this return to quality. I think. Mm-hmm. Have, yeah. have you seen that? Is this in line with what you're talking about? Um, yeah, I, I think I think pretty much there. I have seen that because ten years ago I didn't feel that that what I was reading was there was a lot of quality there. But um, I do feel like more and more the more submissions I get now, um, they seem to be looking at um, the guidelines and and wanting to submit so um uh, wanting to submit good work but i feel like a lot of um a lot of this can be dealt with at conferences that's why i think i think conferences are so valuable and that's something that i've really missed over the past year is talking one-on-one with writers and and getting a feel for what they're interested in and what what we're looking for i love that and i couldn't agree with you more uh, for a variety of reasons if you're an author who's just making their way, and even if you're already made your way, I'm going to say I've always pushed for people to go to conferences, whether they're national or regional. You get, first of all, you get to meet other writers. Writing is such a solitary experience in general that it's good to meet people. Uh, you have to be careful who's out there to kind of put their foot in front of you and trip you in terms of your yeah. ego or whatever. But if you can find people from your tribe, and that support you, that's a plus. But also as an agent, I could read a lot of books, but I always really liked meeting authors because, you know, when you're an editor or an agent, you're kind of having one date before you get married mm-hmm. to your writer. And you want to know that this is someone that when the phone rings, you don't go, oh God, it's them again. Mm-hmm. Or how do I break this to them? Or why did I do this? whatever you you want to have a same productive Mm -hmm. person whose work you like Mm -hmm. and also they should like you like if i'm if you don't like the guy on this podcast you know you can delete it you can not tune in again and that's fine but if you like this then you know what's for you that's Mm -hmm. a plus right what are your thoughts on that 
patients. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I, for one love, um, I love pitches. I mean, I love listening to pitches and talking. It's a very, it's a serious conversation. You know, these are, you know, I feel like they're kindred spirits too, because I love writing too. And so I love to just sort of delve into what they're thinking about their stories and their ideas for their, their own futures as writers. You know, sometimes I felt like I helped people, even if I didn't, if I wasn't their agent, because I helped them refine their pitch. And I'm sure you've done that. And sometimes I'm just the guy they got through. So they realized they weren't going to die when they didn't get their, their pitch okayed. Mm -hmm. uh, having been a stand-up comic, I have to tell you, you're not a stand-up until you've bombed a few times and you realize I'll survive this. Yeah. You know, it's not a big deal. And yeah. uh, you got to take a lot of no's. I mean, you've taken a lot of no's. People, oh, yeah. don't, people don't realize editors want to succeed. They want your book to succeed. They want you to be the solution. They have a problem. Editors have the problem that they want great books. And why isn't the next great book coming? And please bring me the next great book. So exactly. they want it to be great, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're not in business to say no to people. Yeah, and if you are, I mean, it's that's that's pretty evil. <laughs> well, I have met a few agents who I think enjoy that. Yeah, I'm yeah, no, I know. I me too. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I haven't met editors like that. I have met agents. Some that people actually know their names, and someday if I find out that something bad's going to happen to me, I don't have long to live. Maybe I'll do a special episode on. That. Yes, <laughs> but I'm feeling well, so I will not do that episode. <laughs> There's a special vault of secret of se publishing secrets. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, well we'll keep them secret for now. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree with you. The conferences are such a plus. Plus, people learn things at conferences, and um, I know you and I have both been on panels. I don't think we we're on a panel together ever. But it's so valuable if somebody can get some tips from you. And as long as I have you on now, it's a great segue for me to go, what are like five of the biggest uh, mistakes you've seen made by writers? And then be able to talk about five of the best things they can do. I, I don't know. I, I didn't prepare you for this, but oh, so five, five big mistakes you see writers make when they're submitting to you. Um, the first one I'd say is not doing research uh, on the line that you're submitting to. Um, so I'll get, you know, uh, I'll get a historical for my line so, and, and I don't do, I don't do for romantic suspense. I don't, I only do contemporary romances. So it's that, that kind of thing is to make sure you research what that person, the line that that person is mostly working for. Got it. So if somebody sends you they think it's a romantic suspense, but it's actually set in Victorian England. You're like, right. I, I'm not doing that. I'm doing contemporary. Like there's been a murder. This yeah. woman is going to solve it on her own. And as part of a romantic experience. Right. Got it. Okay. That's good information. Um, the other thing too, is sending in something that hasn't been revised a few times. Like Making the you the first draft. Witness. Yeah. Ugh, it drives me crazy with typos. Um, the comma of direct address, leaving that out drives me insane. Like the, hey, comma, mom, you know, like they, they just put, hey, mom, you know, it's, 
or something like that. That that drives me nuts. So you have grammatical pet peeves. That's one pet peeve is I, I kind of put you in a certain category if you if you leave out the comma of direct address. I I try not to, but well, look, I've had Ben Dreyer on this podcast, and he's kind of a friend of mine. Yes. Um, are he's you familiar with Ben? Yes. I love his book. Yeah. And um, God, I've he's forgotten more about grandma than I think I ever learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you, one of my pet peeves is not grandma, I don't think. It is just people um, trying to, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? But um Oh, uh, modifying the word unique. Like, oh, that guy's really unique. No, he's not. He's either unique or he's not unique. You can't modify unique. Like, that's the most unique (laughs) show I've seen. Oh, yeah. It's not. It's either a unique unique. show or it's not. Like, I I just, I've got more, but that's like one of my biggest. Yeah. No, I actually, using actually and really and basically (laughs) and very, I mean, all of those, it's like, you have to cut those, those out. Um, yeah, no. Are you, are you a surgical editor? I am. I mean, I, I probably, I probably should have been a copy editor. Um, just because for me, I don't notice the, you know, if he's in the car, if he got out of the car in this scene, but it was, you know, mistakes like that or timeline things. I noticed, I mostly noticed the grammar and the, um, how the words fit together on the page rather than what they're doing. So, I mean. Well, but those are really important. And for people that don't realize it, if you read something that's not well-crafted, it just takes you out of the story. Yeah, it does. It does. Just Um, like a movie, like when there's a movie that could, or a TV show that could be interesting. And then an actor says a phrase that no human being would ever say in real life. Yeah. Are you just, it's over. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I mean, I I think though in general, I I like the writer to I, I try to stay behind the scenes. I don't I don't rewrite so much as I just sort of fix, do a little, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting. Showbiz, and I consider publishing showbiz, ha- editors are very much like producers in a music studio. Mm-hmm. Some people are like the the act where the individual comes in they play the tunes and I, mm-hmm. my my job as a producer is to stay out of the way and bring the yeah. best of them maybe say look let's do that song not that song you know and i urge writers to learn more about other parts of show business because it will help you see things analogously um but then there are some producers that people want or don't want because they're heavy-handed and there you're going to hear a song ago i know who produced that like yeah. that's a Jeff Lynn song. Right. Jeff Lynn, who was uh, the head of Electric Light Orchestra, yep. and he's produced a lot of people, including a bunch of George Harrison, whatever. He has a sound. Yes. And, you know, whereas someone like, I'm going to pick a guy like Gus Dudgeon, who produced all the Elton John stuff. I think he helped Elton John be fantastic, but I wouldn't say, wow, that sounds like Gus Dudgeon. Yeah. I, I love that you're smiling. No, I know what you're talking about. I, I know those artists. Right. Well, I, I based it on our years. Mm-hmm. I think ELO was very big during our formative years. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Xanadu? Well, did 
did they? I do? think they did a Xanadu thing. Yeah. Um, I'm more of a evil woman and yes. don't, don't bring me down kind of guy. But sure, kids, there used to be these things called records. Yeah. <laughs> and when patients and I were young, we'd go to a store, pick them up, and then play them on our turntables. What's funny is they are back. They're more popular than ever. The records. Why? I don't know. I think, I think it's a fetish. Yeah. Like I. I'm thrilled to have an uncluttered apartment. And so I have downloads. I We have CDs in containers, like, but they are put away. Mm-hmm. I've downloaded all my CDs onto my computer stuff. So I don't, ha- I mean, I love having my phone have all my music on it. But there are people I know in various parts of showbiz who half their apartment is record albums. And they're like, but man, you got to hear the difference. And I'm like, I, some things are wasted on us, right? Patients yeah. like, like I can't drink bad champagne because I can tell champagne versus sparkling wine. I could just yeah. tell. I'm yeah. fortunate that I've had good champagne. But certain wines or certain beers, it's lost on me. Yeah. I just like, I'm fine with this. With you know? whatever. Yeah. Are you I'm in the same boat? totally the same boat i have actually a duran duran vinyl album that's been collecting dust on my bookshelf because i have all of their music on my phone did i tell you i interviewed another duran duran fan Uh uh-huh uh she's a writer i'm totally blanking now so um tell if you tell me about your duran duran experiences oh is zoe archer do you know zoe archer I don't, I've heard, I know of her. I maybe, I don't I, So she's been on the podcast and her husband, Nico Rosso, who is also a writer has been on the podcast. She has written some historical romances, but there are references to like seventies and eighties. And I'm, if I'm wrong, Zoe, I forgive me, but they're like referenced in the titles of mm-hmm. her books and oh, cool. some of the statements in the books are like referenced them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's a crazy Duran Duran fan. So you have that in common. I'm I'm obsessed. I walked down the aisle to Rio <laughs> on my day. And I That's wrote, awesome. I wrote a 50 page term paper in high school on them and it's actually in their archive. Uh, I sent it to them. <laughs> That's fantastic. Are they people that if you met Simon LeBon, for instance, would you literally start crying or shake or would you just laugh or what would your reaction be? Well, I've almost met them so many times and the plans have always fallen through. It's been 37 years of maybe 39 of trying to meet them and it's it's never worked out. So I think at this point, I, I just would... I, I don't know. I'd probably cry and kiss the ground. It's it's my only item on my bucket list. You know, I've been fortunate enough in showbiz to meet some famous people mm-hmm. and some really cool people. But I don't think I had, like, I think I'd be totally weird if I met Paul McCartney or Neil Young. Like, I either of those guys, I think I would just stammer. But mm-hmm. I've met, there's a guy named Marshall Crenshaw, who's a fantastic yes. songwriter and guitar player. Uh, he was friends with an ex-wife. I'll just put it that way. And I've been to a bunch of his small shows. And he's just a lovely guy. Or um, I acted opposite Tom Selleck and talked to him all day when I was an actor. 
And again, super nice guy. Um, you know, I, that, but I, I wasn't a big Tom Selleck fan before that. So it didn't, you know, it didn't shake me. Uh, but I think if I met Paul McCartney, I might, I might literally uh, lose the ability to control my physical body. I mean, it's just growing up with him and the Beatles is so big for me. Oh yeah. I mean, my, I have an ex who met him and said he was the absolute nicest person. Well, you know, what's funny is that Paul McCartney, I heard him say that what's fun for him is when he meets people, it's the best day uh, of the year for them because they're meeting yeah. Paul McCartney. And he didn't say it like he was arrogant. It's just like, they're so happy because they're meeting him. So mm -hmm. it's easy for him. Yeah, Nobody yeah. ever is like, oh, Paul McCartney, you a-hole. Or you yeah, don't need exactly. money. Like, it's not that. It's not a bad thing. No, it's like, oh, I had my first kiss with, yeah. you know, you in the background. Or, you know, I played your music when my mom's funeral and meant a lot to me. Or whatever the thing is. You know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. And he doesn't do selfies, which I think is cool. He I, talks to people. Yeah. He's like, I don't want to do a selfie, but I'll talk to you. Like, mm -hmm. That's amazing. He's just tired of posing for people. I mean, literally, if you were Paul McCartney, your life could devolve to like a day full of selfies. Yeah, yeah. And that would be irritating. It's terrible, yeah. Yeah. Um, I did have a brush with fame myself when I was in an off-Broadway show. And, oh, this very slight brush. Um, I, was, I was living in Hell's Kitchen, which is very close to the off-Broadway show I was doing. And I went out for brunch by myself, exhausted from, I think Saturdays were like two show days. So it might've been a Sunday. I was just having brunch before. And a couple of guys who'd seen the show came to my table and were like, were you in that show? I was like, yeah. And they were, they were very sweet. And I was like, wow, that's very nice. That's amazing. That's awesome. But when I worked with Suzanne Brockman, mm -hmm. it was like whenever we would go to the Midwest or places like it was like we were in the Beatles because nobody famous came and hung out with them. So Suze would spend time with those people, uh, fans, not those people, <laughs> lovely people from all over, just like, you know, Nebraska or Iowa. They don't get a lot of best-selling authors hanging out. But then when you'd want to go and have dinner, like you need to be by yourself after four yeah. hours of signing books and talking to people. And I think that would be hard to be you know sitting having lunch and people approaching that has happened at conferences did that ever happen to you at conferences like i'm i'm off now i'm gonna have a drink and people just constantly stopping by your table while you're trying to have lunch and be like can i pitch you right now <laughs> no it's just because i have mild agoraphobia so i stay inside as as much as possible <laughs> but um i'm i'm good at going out and meeting people but with if I don't, if I don't have to meet with somebody, I'll just stay in my room. Um, Did you do a lot of room service at conferences? Uh, I did. Yeah, I, I would do it maybe one, like maybe, I don't know, I would run to Starbucks and pick something up and bring it to my room. And then I would, I would order room service sometimes. No, no I get, I get that. And, or you specifically have a lunch or dinner with one of your writers so it's right, just the two right. of you and right. do it as we would say off campus not where the conference is but maybe some restaurant nearby yeah the other thing though is that i do 
like if people stop me in the hall or something, it's no problem. I mean, that's what I'm there for. So. And by the way, you're a very friendly person. My experience of you is, yeah, no, well, I, I, I think that you really enjoy what you do and it comes through in every one of my interactions with you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love getting to know people. Um, so, yeah. And I, and I feel like, good transition here, even though we've met a bunch in real life, we see each other far more on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> and and Twitter is a double-edged sword for me. Yeah. I don't know about you. And in a weird way, it has driven my blood pressure up. And it's mm -hmm. also saved my life, especially yes. over four years of Trump. OMG. Yes, for sure. And what I think is interesting, I was on a walk with my happy, lovely wife this morning in Brooklyn. And she said, you know, it's not over. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't even pay attention to stuff as much as I do. But the truth is, I mean, there's a craziness that still lives in this country. And they're not done. And I know we're going to get political. And I hope you don't mind. But no, no, not at all. if people can give money to the right, the right, the candidates that we need to keep, you know, I don't know, like, do things correctly, like get the vaccine out to people as opposed to pretend there's no problem. Or, yeah. you know, or make sure that, you know, police don't just shoot random black people in the street for no reason. Or yeah. like, I, I mean, where to begin? I don't know. I'm just saying that we can't say, well, we won. We got the right guy in office. And now I'm going to go take a nap for a couple of years. Uh, yeah. It's not over. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, totally. I mean, uh, there there's already their plans, I guess, for 2022 and 2024. And I do have a fear of like having this more a little bit more calm in the administration and the, and competent people that after a couple of years people say yeah but you know and they didn't do this so i'm really mad about it so i'm going to vote for this lunatic right it's like oh well you know they didn't give us free this or that it's like i know but they made sure everybody had a vaccine and he's talking about free college and like I'm actually surprised at how liberal Biden has turned out to be in these first hundred days or so. I know. Happily I, pleased, I might add. Yeah, no, because he he seemed to me very much in the middle. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm going to say that I am financially well off. I don't want to piss people off or brag, but mm -hmm. I'm doing okay. And in fact, last year was a very good year for me financially, even though it was a horrific year in just about every other way. I give money to candidates. I give money to the food bank here in New York and some other things. This is not to give me a medal. I'm just saying it's not just about money, number one, because I actually care about people and where I live. But if you can and you're hearing me, you know, throw a couple of bucks to anything from a food bank where it really makes a difference to a candidate not even in your area, but let's just pick someplace like Georgia or Florida, where we need to keep the lunacy at bay. Yeah, yeah that was my little message for the peeps. Um, it's, it's and good to, give, to give money. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you for letting me throw that in in our interview. Uh, and plus, let's not kid ourselves. You know, the arts really get screwed when certain people get into politics. You know, less funding for the arts in general, the professional arts, you know, theaters, museums, 
but also schools, you know, this notion that people take music out of the schools or, you know, uh, they start to talk about what literature can be read in schools. It's, um, or rewriting history books. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, we just, a day or two ago, there was someone, I'm sorry, South, but you, you earned it. Someone in the South in the state legislature was talking about the three-fifths compromise uh, look up your constitutional history, my friends. Um, talking about valuing certain human lives less than others because of the color of their skin as part of deciding how we were going to determine the number of representatives in this country. And the way they talked about it was beyond ignorant. It was just lying. Mm -hmm. And keeping people uninformed or misinformed or, you know, having them watch Fox News is just the worst. All right. We should go back to literature. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's okay. How do, how do people, you know, let's say somebody hears you on this podcast and goes, wow, Patience seems really cool. I'd like to have her be my editor. How do they do that? Uh, they go to submittable.com. Uh, yeah. And look for Harlequin and... My name is somewhere there. Uh, they can also find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm also, I have a website, just patienceBloom.com. By the way, Patience Bloom, pretty specific name. Yeah, exactly. Not a lot of Patience Blooms out there. Yeah, just any way you can get my attention, go for it. Uh, is there anything Within in particular? reason. <laughs> yeah, right. Please. As an, a former agent. People tried to get my attention in ways that were later terrifying and possibly illegal. Did you, is there anything you're looking for right now specifically and then sort of generally what are you looking for? Uh, well, I work on, mostly on Harlequin Romantic Suspense and I'm looking for diversity. Um, all, uh, you know, ac across the board, that's what I want. Uh, so when you're saying diversity, are you talking about stories involving people of color, Asian people, uh -huh. Hispanics? Yep, uh, diversity in terms of, uh, I, I am also looking for a same-sex story. Uh, now is that male-male or female-female or does it matter? Doesn't matter. Um, I just think, I think that would be fun to put to, you know, because we've seen I don't know. I consider, you know, Rizzoli and Isles and Cagney and Lacey kind of something, you know, along those lines. Uh, but that when they happen. get home at night, they're romantically involved. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, something. Yeah. Or male, male, too. Sure. Sure. It's interesting that, at least from my point of view, I feel like when when same sex romances started to become popular, it felt like male, male was Yes. Took the lead. Well, what's interesting too is I was watching, I was obsessed with the show Queers Folk. Um, <laughs> I think, and yeah. I found out from a friend who works at Showtime, she said that most of the, the viewers were female. So. Um, <laughs> okay. So here, uh, I don't know what it is. I think there's an element of seeing an aspect of men that we usually don't see, like vulnerable men emotional men there are some tv shows that don't go nearly that far or movies like field of dreams let's talk about the movie field of dreams 
I don't know any woman who doesn't love Field of Dreams because they get to see Kevin Costner, spoiler alert, reunite with his father in a lovely way and go through this whole, and maybe I'm wrong. You're looking at me like you're not tracking. Oh, oh, I I can sort of see. I mean, Field of Dreams for me was kind of meh, but um, I, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Uh, okay. Um, but there are guys like me who, uh, you know, look, I've been in showbiz, I've been in theater, I've dated a lot of different people, I'll just put it that way. And so I think that um, I like all the stories. And I think that women, I've had probably 95% of my friends are women. Um, so I may be just, I may have a skewed way of looking at things. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm talking too much about myself. That wouldn't be the first time I will tell no, you. I, no, I <laughs> and um, dreams. I'll have to rewatch it because that was Ray Liotta, wasn't it? Wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. It's amazing. Um, As Shoeless Joe Jackson. That's right. Yeah. Um, rewatch it. Well, you know what? Here's a great. Uh, have you seen um, Roy Lasso? Is it Roy Lasso? Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, excuse me. Awesome. Have you seen Ted Lasso? I awesome. have yet to talk to anyone who didn't completely love that show, Ted Lasso. And what they love about it is his heart. Yeah. I mean, well, what do you, what do you think? What did you love about that show? Well, I went into it thinking, okay, this is going to be a, a piece of crap. I mean, usually when there's a name, you know, Ted Lasso, I mean, big whoop. I don't know you. And yeah. I love Jason Sudeikis, but then I thought, oh, you know, he's going to be trying so hard. And, oh, there's going to, you know, he has this accent. He's kind of good. And then it just seeped in. And I just, we just got really hooked and it was so simple. It, it was his, his heart. And I just noticed my husband, every episode, he had a tear running down his face. And um, I just, I loved the, the, the team, uh, just the, that whole dynamic between them. And just, I used to coach. So it was, it, it, I just, I just loved so many aspects of it. And every character had, had, had a charm. So. There's a couple of romances some are real romances and some are romances in a larger sense. So if you haven't seen Ted Lasso yet, you may want to not listen to this or you may say, screw it, but I'm, there may be some spoilers. Um, there's a young woman who starts out with one football player, yep. but she ends up with another. And there's a moment, first of all, I love her. The actress's first name is Juno. I think yes. she's amazing. Amazing. She's, I mean, she's very attractive, but she's an amazing actress because what happens is she's with this guy who's got a great body, but not a lot else going on. There's a scene where the guy who she will ultimately be with realizes he has to step up. And by the way, realizes it because he reads A Wrinkle in Time, which is like <laughs> everyone's favorite book. So let's just put that out there brilliantly done there so anyway he comes into a bar and he basically asserts himself like a leader and like a grown-up and i'll say it like a man and when you see her reaction to him she has what i can only describe as a visual uh, a visceral full body but not overacting and you see her go oh crap that's a real man i want that 
Yes. And, and she says it all without saying a word. Yep. I've seen the show, by the way, full through at least four times, maybe five. So I'm like starting to look at nuances now. Yes. And then over the 10 episodes, every time she interacts with him and he with her, they have these amazing, right yep. out of great romance interactions. Totally agree. And it's just the best writing. If you are a romance reader and you haven't seen Ted Lasso yet, you need to watch it just for those two performers. Yeah. Then Ted himself is in a romance, but not with his wife. He's in a romance with what he does yep. and with people he works for, and especially in a strange way, the owner of the football team. It, yes. And they have a magnificent loving relationship ultimately that has nothing to do with sexuality. No, and it's like two different cultures just bonding in a very real way. I mean, just... He wins her over. Yes, yeah. Because you can't deny who he is. Mm -hmm. and, what, and, and I just want to say also, Coach Beard, I love Coach Beard. What a great mm -hmm. actor. There's mm -hmm. Nate the Great. He's fantastic. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. lots of little, there's a Nigerian soccer player who's just mm -hmm. amazing. Danny Rojas is mm -hmm. just like a puppy dog. He's amazing. The level of, I just, I feel like anyone who loves romance and loves great stories will love it. By the way, the other thing I thought of with these, Holly, my wife and I, I mean, we love romance and we're romantic. But we also love stories where men and women can love each other without it being intimate. For instance, there's a movie called Once. It's the story of two songwriters who meet in, du I think it's Dublin. Um, it was made into a Broadway musical. Um, they, the guys who did that also did a movie called Song Street, um, which was a great thing. Uh, and... Um, just stories of men and women who can love each other, but love each other in a completely different way than romantic love. Yeah. Um, I find that fascinating. And I've lo I love lots of people in my life. And mm -hmm. I am monogamous. <laughs> so, but I think we're capable of so much, which I feel like I want to segue to, is that what turns you on about editing romance? Because you've read probably more romantic no romance novels than mm -hmm. most people because by dint of what you do would that be accurate um yes uh and and to your point about the different kinds of romance uh or different kinds of intimacy i do find that uh one of my favorite parts now um especially like in the last 10 years or so i i love the characters apart from the actual romance. I love their lives and the secondary characters and the worlds that they build. I think, I think that's, um, as I've grown, I guess, in, in my field, that's been something that's, that's interested me more and more than, than the actual romance. We're running out of time and I've talked at you a lot, but I'm grateful that you listened and that you've talked to me as well. Do you have any thoughts about what, uh, anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to tell people or you want me to know? Hmm. 
I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, it's okay. Are you looking forward? Do you see an end to the pandemic and going back to the office and conferences? And is that something you're looking forward to? I am looking forward to that. I think that uh, we'll going back to the office. I I imagine we'll go before the end of this year. Probably not on an everyday. Mm -hmm. uh, schedule, but um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm seeing a lot more of my colleagues out in the open now, uh, which is great. <laughs> out in the open, like wild yeah. animals in their yeah, natural habitat. They're three-dimensional. It's so weird. <laughs> well, let, let's be honest. There are plenty of two-dimensional people out there, yeah. even yeah, in real life, but, but editors are definitely three-dimensional in my experience. Yeah, yeah. And we depend on writers, so that's probably my final... Well, I appreciate that. And I really appreciate you, Patience. Thanks so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I can't thank you enough. That was so much fun. Thank you. I love it when my guests have fun on the show. Um, because frankly, I have fun on the show. And I hope you do too. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or want to see what we're going to do in the next year, want to have some kind of input, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, go to isthatreallylegal.com and there's a place to leave me a message about it. Are you subscribing to this podcast? You know you can. Frankly, you should. Um, you can do that. You can rate the podcast. Get some Abe's muffins, shove them in your face, and while you're eating... Go up to someone and say, have you listened to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin? And take a picture of what happens next. I think that would be fun. Um, we're wrapping up the year. I think my next podcast is going to be the one year anniversary. I'm really thrilled that you all have been taking this ride with me. And I'm really looking forward to what the next year is going to bring. So... Let me know what you're excited about for the next year and we can talk about it. All right, please be safe. Get the vaccine if you haven't already. Wear the mask if you need to. And let's take care of each other. We are really wrapping this thing up. I'm very excited about it. Be well, we'll talk soon.